So um, just, uh, I, I, this is a little bit difficult, uh, and one of the things I'm trying to do is to keep the, uh, the atmosphere of a class uh, without being actually able to have um, people in person, because it's trying to keep it so that it's not two sermons. So I'll try to preserve a little bit of the mood, uh, even though we, we really don't have the interaction. So we're going to be in Job, chapter 9. Uh, and we're going to be going through this and, and uh, trying to, to cover a little bit more uh, material. Uh, some stuff as we go through Job is going to be repetitive, so we'll probably be skipping some of those thoughts um, that, that get repeated frequently and, and kind of just covering some of the new ideas and concepts. So in, uh, in chapter 9, Job is answering um, Eliphaz. We talked about, uh, or uh, excuse me, Bildad. Uh, and uh, uh, actually, why don't we? Uh, I'm, I just made a mistake already. And if I turned my page over, I would have seen that we're doing build that. I thought that sounded strange. Uh, so, uh, chapter 8, excuse me, is where we're at. Uh, and we're going to try to get Bildad's uh, speech and, and then Job's response. So, uh, we're going to try to cover some material from three chapters. Uh, Bildad is a little bit briefer than Eliphaz. Um, so I want you to keep in mind as we do go through this that uh, Elihu, the younger man, is observing all of this. Uh, he's going to state later that he's been listening and hoping that one of these guys was going to sound intelligent and they just didn't do it. And, that's, and, and this whole time he's getting angrier and angrier. And I think that this speech is probably where he starts getting angry. Um, so uh, we're going to read verse 1 through 7, uh, and uh, it says, Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you speak these things? And the words of your mouth be like a strong wind. Does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, uh, he has cast them away for their transgressions. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you are pure and all, uh, upright, Surely he would now awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. Um, this section, um, I, I, I want to start with, I'm not going to start and go through in chronological order here. I want to start with uh, one statement here that he makes. Um, because in this section, there are at least nine incorrect assumptions. You know, when we went through Eliphaz, we could say, well, okay, I kind of tentatively agree with that. There's, there's a couple like that. Um, and, and in verse, uh, verse 3 is the, one of the only statements in here that I can kind of see there's a point to. He says, does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? Now, on the face of it, those are obvious answers. No, God doesn't. That's what he's trying to say. But in every statement here, we're going to see at least a partial or complete incorrect assumption. Uh, verse 3 is, the statement is fine, uh, but he misapplies it. Um, so his, uh, his obvious assumption is that God's not perverting justice because he's got... Uh, Job has suffering, so suffering comes from sin. So the point that they're trying to make, these friends are trying to make, is that Job needs to repent. Uh, 
and, and so this is the incorrect assumption, is that all suffering is for sin. Bildad is assuming all bad things are connected to some spiritual cause. I do like, uh, so I want to back up to verse 2, and then we'll go through it from here chronologically. I, I, I think it is funny that he says, how long are you going to talk like a strong wind? Uh, we have the same type of a phrase, right? You've heard the phrase, a blowhard, right? Um, just someone who is, uh, you know, overbearing, obnoxious, you know, person, Just they just talk and you're, we're all exhausted for having heard them. And my, just as I read through Job, Bildad's is the guy that signifies this the most. Uh, Eliphaz, he's going to say similar things to Eliphaz, but Eliphaz tends to be a little bit more, uh, he puts it a little bit nicer. And we'll, we'll see an example of that uh, pretty quickly. Um, but here he makes uh, an assumption. He assumes, he says, how long are you going to speak these things? And the words of your mouth be like a strong wind. So he's assuming that, that Job is not knowledgeable. You know, you're just a blowhard, Job. Job doesn't know anything. Now, remember when, what, what was their uh, position when they first came to him? What was the opening statement? You teach. You, you've been a teacher to many people. You, you've been a, you know, look how wise you are. Now that's changed. Uh, now they're dismissing it. And I think, I don't know if that's just because we tend to dismiss the less fortunate or people that don't look impressive. Uh, maybe maybe that's happening. Um, but uh, I, I, I find it a little bit ironic that you have to know that Bildad didn't have a perfect life. But he seems to be assuming that, um, you know, he's fine, of course. It's, it's just Job. And um, that must mean then that, you know, there's nothing wrong in, in his life going on. But I'm sure there is. And he's just, you know, he's not connecting that to sin. Right? We assume that the wrong in other people's lives must be connected to sin. And I think that's what he's doing here. So, so a couple of incorrect assumptions there. Verse 4, we already covered verse 3, so we jump down to verse 4. It says, if your, sins, if your sons have sinned against them, he's cast them away for their transgression. Now, remember when we talked about Eliphaz? And, and Eliphaz kind of said the same thing, but he did it a little bit more subtly. He said, well, you know, if you're right with God, you'll have a lot of offspring you know, and a lot of descendants, which was kind of a subtle shot that I'm sure Job picked up at, you know, the fact that his kids are dead. Bildad just says, listen, your, your sons have probably sinned, that's why they're dead. And so, uh, there are, again, multiple incorrect assumptions here. He's assuming, uh, Bildad is assuming that, that Job's sons have, have done something wrong. Uh, what you think of it, especially if you're an older person, uh, you have friends, and, and you, if you think of friends that you've known for a long time, and, uh, you know, maybe they move away, you know, 
how well do you know their kids? I mean, you might have known their kids, but how well do you really know their kids? We tend not to really keep up with the kids of the people that we know, unless we're related, maybe. But, but even as adults, think about your, even your nephews or nieces. How well do you even know them as adults? I mean, you might have a good connection, but you probably are more loosely connected to the everyday affairs in their lives, right? And so I think it's pretty safe to make an assumption that these friends, they had to make an appointment to just to come see Job. How well do they know Job's friends or Job's kids who have moved away from Job? Well, not at all. They don't know Job's friends. And, and, and so, so they don't know Job's kids and what's going on. And they're just making these assumptions about their lives. Now, uh, he makes another assumption. He makes an assumption that atonement hasn't been made for them. Right? Which we know has been going on. We've talked about that at the beginning. That was a very important detail. Or he's making a different assumption. And here he's making a contradictory assumption. Now, if Bildad was aware of this fact, if Job at some point said, listen, I've been sacrificing for their unknown sins, if he told them what we know from the book, then Bildad has just made a self-contradictory position. Remember what was his opening, uh, one of his opening thoughts is, does God pervert justice? Does he? And so if, if he recognizes that an atonement has been made for the kids, then he has to assume that God is not honoring a sacrifice for sin. And that would actually be subverting justice. So, so in order to get to the conclusion he wants, he's got to make self-contradictory assumptions. Uh, verse 5 and 6, he makes some, uh, a few more. He says, if you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, and if you are pure and upright. Now we just stop right there. If here is a rhetorical statement. He's saying, if you would have done this, then this would have happened. This didn't happen. So therefore, this is not a condition. So he is assuming that he knows about Job's life. He, he's now assuming, remember again where we, we started out from how they complimented Job and, and talked about how good and wonderful he was, but you know, to the, to the oh, your hands have strengthened the weak and you've done these things. And he's, They started off talking about that. But now he's saying, if you would earnestly seek God. So in other words, he's assuming that Job isn't earnestly seeking God. And then if you are pure and upright. So he's saying, you're not pure and upright. You're immoral. And upright has to do, remember, if we talked about righteousness a while back, the difference between holiness and righteousness. I, 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 I think I was in an Ephesians class. Upright has to do with your... Um, really your interactions with people, your righteousness, your justice, your fairness, and honesty. So he's now assuming the exact opposite of what they all confirmed when they came to him. They're assuming that, or, or Bildad is assuming that he's been somehow less than fair or honest with these, these people of you know, lesser, you know, and, and it's all kind of karma coming back around to you is, is his idea. And then the final assumption, which again, this is kind of has a sort of truth, but not really. 
He says, though your beginning was small, your latter end would increase abundantly. In other words, if you turned and repented and were upright and all this, then, then this would happen to you. And now, he's, he is correct in one sense. This is going to happen. But his incorrect assumption is that there's a guarantee of wonderful physical conditions just so long as you do everything right morally. God does not make that guarantee. Uh, so, so all of these are false assumptions. He says really almost nothing in this speech that's incorrect. But the, now this is going to be interesting. Because what we're going to read for the rest of the chapter uh, is, is a big shift. And I'm just like, wow, this is... He starts saying things that are correct. So I want to read verse 8 through 22. And notice the difference. He says, now... Inquire, please, of the former age, and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days are on, on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you in utter words from their heart? Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water? While it is green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of those who forget God. The hope of the hypocrite will perish whose confidence will be cut off, whose trust is a spider's web. He leans on his house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. He grows green in the sun, his branches spread out in the garden. His roots wrap around a rock heap and look for a place in the stones, and he is destroyed from his place, and it will deny him, saying, I have not seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and, the earth, and of the earth others will grow. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless nor will he uphold the evildoers. He will fill your mouth with laughing, your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. That sounds a little bit different. And I want to back up and go through through this um, a little bit. He appeals to their forefathers. He says, uh, uh, in, in, he says, inquire of the former age and consider things discovered by their fathers. So I don't know when he's talking about specifically, but remember that these men are living probably in the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right around there, and or maybe a little bit after even. I'm not sure exactly. But, but they're living... Uh, uh, he, notice he says, we were born yesterday, we know nothing. Our, our days on earth are a shadow. Now that Job is going to live around 200 years old. So, so he's referring to the men of old. I mean, probably he's referring at least back to Noah's time or, or maybe before the flood or just after uh, the, this period of great learning and wisdom right? that even the Bible talks about back then. Um, so I believe if we look at and see the difference in the text, starting in verse 11, we're looking at quotations, proverbs that they had passed down to them. Uh, and we'll, even in chapter 9, we'll, we'll probably confirm that. Um, and, and so all of these, I'm not, I don't want to go through every detail here because a lot of it is poems and, and, poems and proverbs uh, that they had that are kind of convey a, a general um, concept and idea. Uh, but it is kind of interesting that he could be quoting from people that we know. I mean, he could be quoting Noah. He could be quoting... Uh, you know, Enoch or something like that. That's interesting. Um, so, um, 
these generations, remember, they, they lived a long time. And, and, and so uh, they, these generations went back and they, they remembered people very close in time to, to Adam. And so these things were you know, fresh in their mind that they were handing down uh, to, to other people. So, uh, we need, do need to keep in mind a couple of things about this poem. They're true generally, they're not necessarily true specifically. Uh, and to whatever degree that we look at them as true, we should remember that they're spiritually true, they're not necessarily physically true. And, and you can make that uh, assumption and be incorrect. So, just so long as we keep that in mind, then, then we can look at it and say, wow, this, this is accurate. Maybe he should have just quoted from verse 11 to the end and, and left it there and not made his assumptions at the beginning. It would have been a better speech. So he talks about in verse 11 through 18, he really just kind of covers the, the fate of hypocrites, generally speaking. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh and the reeds flourish without water? <clears throat> and then the idea is, you know, these living things these reeds, and they're very temporary, they're very fragile, uh, and they grow up out of a marsh. In other words, this is these things are naturally produced from this source. And so hypocrites will naturally produce something that's very temporary. And this, is, this, is a, a, this is wisdom that we've learned and we know. We grew up, maybe they went to the same school and studied this, I don't know. But, but he's like, Job, this is why you're, you're temporary, because you've grown up in a marsh. You're, you're, you know, this, you have this swampy kind of a character, and, and you did good for wonderful for, for a little bit. But now you're suffering early in your life. There must be a problem. You must be a hypocrite. And that's his, that's his assumption. And then verse 19 through uh, 22 is kind of his final analysis I'm not sure, actually, in verse 19 through 22, if he's giving his own analysis or still quoting the proverb, uh, but it still kind of looks like Proverbs uh, that he's quoting. But he says, uh, uh, God will not cast away the blameless. Uh, he, he talks about how um, the, their, their, their stuff is going to, you know, he says, uh, uh, let me find it here. Uh, uh, verse 19 says, Behold, this is the way, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth others will grow. And so I don't know if he's saying, you know, when, when you're a hypocrite, um, other people will benefit from anything you've done. God's going to, you know, Solomon kind of quoted that, you know, people try to grab stuff and, and they just save it up for other people to spend. Or, or maybe he's just saying, you know, other people learn lessons, you know, you're, you're going to go through and other people are going to have to learn the lessons and they're going to watch you and benefit from the lessons you've learned. I'm not sure exactly what he's trying to get at. And God, he says, God doesn't cast away the wicked. Well, that's 100% true. Just so long as we understand that spiritually. And I think he's saying, well, God wouldn't cast... It's obvious God's cast you away because... Um, Look at your condition. And when we look at what we know about the situation, we know it's actually the exact opposite. God hasn't cast him away. God's actually picked him out of the entire earth 
Think about the, the assumptions that, that are made when we, we don't know what's going on. Um, and, you know, we, we, we make assumptions about things going on in our society around us and, and all sorts of things. Uh, God must be punishing us because things aren't going the way I want. Or what have you, right? That's, that's, that's all over Facebook if you want to look at people's conclusions of what's going on in the world around us right now. And people make all these assumptions that we have no idea what God is doing. And in reality, God handpicked Job out of all the people on the planet of the earth to show how much confidence he had in him. He had done the exact opposite of casting him away. He's holding him up as, among humanity, the ideal person. Now think about that. Um, that would be, to me, amazing if if he did live at the same time of, as Abraham. I'm not saying he did, but if he did, God might be saying, this guy's better than Abraham. Could you imagine that? Uh, you know, cause based on what we think about Abraham, that, that would be something you know, significant. So we're going to get to Job's response. Job's response covers... Uh, two chapters. Uh, I'm not sure or that we're going to get through it all. Uh, I, I doubt we will. But uh, uh, in chapter 9, verse 1 to 3, Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so. How can a man, but how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, he could not answer, with him, answer him one time in a thousand. So, this is interesting. Job answers and says, truly, I know this is true. And don't, certainly don't think he's confirming the opening verses of, of wrong assumption. So, I think he's referring to this proverb. I, I think he recognized these as whatever, whatever Bildad is quoting. He's like, yes, I, I agree with that. I understand that. But I still have this problem. And uh, this is interesting because we have this happen to us all the time. Job has a dilemma between what he knows and what he feels. Now, you and I would immediately say, we'll go with what you know. That's a little bit more objective. Don't, your heart is deceitful above all else, right? If we follow that conclusion, certainly the way that this is being applied, Job would arrive at a wrong conclusion if he trusts the Proverbs of what he knows. He's saying, I know that this is the case and maybe he's applied this this way previous for other people. He's like, it's, it, it doesn't feel, I, I, I know, I don't feel guilty. And we're going to see him come back around to that same idea later on. I know I can't be righteous before God. I know that, but I just don't feel guilty. Uh, he has a disconnect. And there is a time when our heart is better than our brain. And that is when our brain has been fed incorrect information. Either it's been misapplied, like Bildad is doing, or maybe you've just studied something wrong and think it's true. And if you start trying to build your life on those principles, it's going to not work. And, and it will create a, an emotional disconnect. Why is this, why is not, this isn't working? It could be religious principles that you were raised with and they're not working. It can be 
you know, if you were not raised in the church and you think this is supposed to be the way that you do things and, and it leads to depression or whatever it is, uh, and your heart, in some sense, is telling you something's not right. Now, this doesn't mean that you just trust your heart and do whatever your heart says, but you should at least take that and say, I need to reanalyze what I've been fed, what, what my brain is taking in. Maybe the things that I've thought and concluded are not accurate. I might need to go back and let your brain rework the formula that you have that is the structure of your life. So um, he says, how can a man rest, uh, be righteous before God? So he's wrestling between the generic truths in the speech of Bildad's and his specific observations of his life and his relationship with God. Um, and this is interesting. And so, so he says, but who can be righteous before God? And one of the criticisms of Elihu is that all of the questions, Job is going to ask throughout this book a bunch of questions. And what Elihu observes is that his friends never answered the questions. When we get to the end of these cycles of speeches, they just shut up because they didn't have any answer. Um, and that's when he gets really mad. So Elihu is probably waiting for their really smart answer. And they'll never answer this question, who can be righteous before God? In other words, the assumption is really compared, this is a really profound statement. I, I can try to be as righteous and I feel righteous, but I've, I'm probably wrong somewhere. So he then launches into verse 4 through 10, which is a discussion of God's superiority. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and ever prospered? He removes mountains they don't know. When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves uh, of the sea. He made Arcturus, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. He does great things beyond finding out wonders without number. I want to stop there. Um, they talk about how great a teacher Job was, and I believe that this is a, a an evidence of that great ability to teach, um, not just to be a teacher, but but he's wise in how he teaches, how he structures things. Uh, we've talked about how Elihu's going to criticize his friends for not answering Job, and this is one of those references to me that that suggests he's he's answering Bildad using Bildad's own style of logic, and he's going to throw it back at him. And there's one reference in here that, that brought me to this. I was trying to figure out what these things meant. What, what, what is all these different components? What does it have to do? Is it just generally saying God is amazing? But there was, as I was looking through these things, was, there was one reference in this section that didn't make sense to me. Um, not sure if you found it, I'm not really giving you a lot of time to do so, but but there's one that says in verse seven, he commands the sun and it does not rise. Now all the others I, I, I look at and it's amazing, you know what what he's talking about. You know you can look at things, and, um, you know observations of the, the the constellations and things like that. And I said, well, 
But what does this mean? He commands the sun and it does not rise. Well, he's not talking about an eclipse. Because I'm looking for amazing things that they would look at and go, wow, that's a sign of the divine. But that's not how they talked about um, an eclipse. They used the phrase, the sun being darkened. That was an eclipse. That was their language for it. He's talking about that, that occurs in the middle of the day. That's, that doesn't occur as the sun is rising or not rising. There was, I don't believe there was ever a time where the sun didn't, you know, where, where there's no sunrise, in the sense. Unless someone said, well, he's talking about clouds. I don't think so. And, and the reason I don't think that is because that's a natural phenomenon. It's easily observable. I don't, I don't think <coughs> people who were intelligent enough to have named uh, constellations... Um, already have names for for things and and are understanding uh, some of the some of the constellations are going to somehow there's a cloudy morning and they're going to go oh my goodness the sun didn't come up today where did it go you know especially when they see the clouds you know that's a natural thing that occurs every day so I kind of tried to look at these as a whole, and, and see if there are there's a common thread to all of them. And this is what I've concluded. You conclude something different if you wish. So I'm not going to hold you to it. But Bildad had gone back to the men of old who wrote proverbs and poetry. And I think Job goes back and says, okay, you want to talk about people from old? Let's talk about science from old. And talk about amazing things that God did from old. And I think he's going back to the flood. Think about some of the things he he states here. uh, That would be really observable if we went back to Genesis. He talks about um, God removing mountains, shaking the earth and the pillars. And there are those kind of references in Genesis as we talk about this geological upheaval. And um, I think that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that uh, that that makes sense. He's talking about God's power. Well, then he moves on. He talks about how the sun and the stars are concealed. How I think even even atheist people recognize. You talk about an ice age and things like that and volcanic ash. That would have been in, and, and suddenly concealed the sun. And I mean concealed it, so it would have been very, very dark for a while. Well, what if he's referencing that? Now, now we go and see, even in this passage, God uh, visiting again and showing his power again in the post-flood world uh, as he again spreads out the heavens in, in verse 8. Right? Again, talking about this God's coming back and, and again restoring things. And, and oh, here we are again. And and making the bear and the Orion and the Pleiades. And then he talks about the chambers of the south. And this is all kind of interesting because he says, well, the bear and the Orion and the Pleiades are uh, constellations which are mostly visible in the northern hemisphere. Orion is kind of visible in the southern hemisphere as well. And... Uh, <coughs> And then he just kind of, in a generic way, 
talks about the southern hemisphere, the, the chambers of the south. Apparently, Job had not heard uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh, you know, when you see the Southern Cross for the first time, uh, he, hadn't, he didn't know the names of the, uh, the Southern constellations. But then he talks about God treading on the waves. In other words, this, this idea, I mean, even you think about Jesus, the, this divine power that can walk on waves and, and, and really be impervious to it. And, and, and God hears all the waves and the flooding and everything going, and God just kind of walks over it and smooths it and says, let's get back to life as normal. And that's God's power. And then, so, so from, he, he moves then from, from that in verse 10. Begin in verse 11 and go through verse 13. He says, if he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I don't perceive him. He takes, if he takes away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God's not going to stop his anger. The allies of the proud lie flat beneath him. Uh, and so he moves on to his personal considerations of God and hypothetical um, as God interacts with people, not just with the universe. But the, the power of God. It, 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 he moves where he wants and invisibly. And who goes, oh, hey, God's doing this. And God's, he's like, I don't know what God is doing. He does what he wants and no one questions him. God, no one, God doesn't ask approval for whatever he wants to do in the universe or, or in people's lives. And God doesn't withdraw his anger. In other words, when God makes a decision, he doesn't go, oh, you know what, I made a mistake there. If God has decided to be angry with me for something, he's probably right. I don't know what it is. I don't feel wrong. But I'm going to imagine he's correct and I'm not. Job's inadequacy. Um, Job talks about his inadequacy beginning in verse 14 through 20, and I want to read that, it's interesting. He says, How then could I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I was righteous, I couldn't answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I wouldn't believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but he fills me with bitterness. If it is a matter of strength, indeed he's strong. And if it's from justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I was righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I was blameless, it would prove me perverse. And I think Job is kind of going back and forth between a few thoughts here. Uh, but but this in this he describes a court case, an alleged court case, how it would go. And so far... Um, you know, his conclusions will be correct. In the future, he's going to conclude things that might be a little bit... He's going to eventually say, I wish I did have a court case. God, I want a court case with you. And then God's going to grant it. Um, and it's going to go exactly <laughs> like he says here. He would have been good to, to keep this section in mind. Um, he says, how can I answer him? Well, in that final court case, when God does talk with him, he's not going to answer God. He's going to say, I, I'm just going to shut up now. And uh, he says, so, so how could I answer him? Uh, remember, this is hypothetical. How would I state my case? How, how would I argue with him? 
I, I'm so far beneath him. And so in, in this section, he says, if I was righteous, I, I wouldn't be able, even if I was righteous, I, I'm just not on that level to be able to talk with him. I don't even have access to state my case. How, how do I establish a court case with them? In verse 15, he says, um, or excuse me, verse 16, he says, if I called and he answered me, I wouldn't even believe that, that he's talking to me. Like, I'm not sure I heard what I said. In other words, the, the, the things happening in my life are, are so, so strong. His, his judgment and punishment of me, I'm not sure that I would, if God said, okay, I want a court case with you, you get to come and present your case. I'm not sure that it would actually be God talking because it feels so strongly in my life that, that God is doing something hurtful to me and I, and I don't see a cause for it. I don't understand it. I might doubt my perception. Uh, in verse 19, he says, you know, uh, if a matter of strength, he goes, basically he goes through three types of ways a court case, a hypothetical court case could be handled. He's like, I could argue from a position of, of strength. If it's a matter of strength, well, he's too strong. In other words, uh, some people in a court case will argue from a position of strength, right? We talk about plea bargaining. Like, Listen, this is the evidence against you. And, uh, and you can take this, or we're going to take you to court, and you'll get a worse sentence. Okay, you have a position of strength. So, so if, if I was going to try to do that, well, he's got the position of strength. He's going to force me into a plea bargain. You know, I, I can't argue from a position of strength with God, even if I felt I was innocent, which happens. Sometimes people are innocent and take the plea bargain because it's, they, they just see that they can't prove their innocence. So a guilty person will sometimes take a plea bargain to try to get a lighter sentence than they are going to get. Um, then he says, or I could argue from a position of justice, but who would appoint my day in court? Or, and, and there are different interpretations of this. He's saying either who is going to represent me in court, or how would I call witnesses, or, or what, whatever the case may be. How, how is this process going to play out? We just don't have the ability to do that. Or I could argue from a position of innocence. And in which case I would find, even if I felt innocent, even if I were righteous, somehow my own mouth would condemn me. And somehow I would say something that would make me look guilty, even if I was right. I would implicate myself somehow. And that happens. So, uh, so in verse 21... Uh, beginning, and we're going to go through the end of the, uh, through the end of the chapter, and we're just going to handle this very generically. He says, "I'm blameless, but I don't know myself. I despise my life. It's all one thing. It's all the same. Therefore, I said, I just conclude, he destroys the blameless and the wicked, both of them. If the scourge kills suddenly, then he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given to the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces." of its judges. If it's not him, who else could it be? Now my days are swifter than a runner. They run away, they see no good, and they pass like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. And if I say, I'm going to forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and wear a smile. I'm afraid of all my sufferings, and I know you won't hold me innocent. If I'm condemned, why do I labor in vain? 
If I wash myself with snowy water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes will hate me. For he is not a man like I am, that I can answer him, that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on both of us, let him take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me. And then I would speak and not fear him, but it's not so with me. There's a lot of stuff in here, um, and we'll conclude with this. We're not going to get to the second part of his, his answer. But verse 21, he kind of repeats what he said. I'm blameless, but you know I don't know myself. I don't know everything about me. I feel blameless. It's kind of why he's, he's always had this, this awareness of that, and so he's always sacrificed for you know, an unknowing sin. And so, verse 22, is, my conclusion is this. He destroys the blameless and the wicked. Now, this is, this is one of those cases, just kind of like Bildad, with, I mean, they had limited ability and access to information, so, so he's made a conclusion. He's probably been attempting to do it in reverence for God, but he's made the wrong conclusion, which is, and you can kind of see him, it's like, ah, you're so close. It's all the same thing. He destroys the blameless and the wicked. Now, that's partially true in the sense that God allows things to, to happen to the just and the unjust, right? Jesus said that. But it's not directly from God. He's concluded the same thing in a way that Bildad has concluded. They're actually not too far off, these guys, from each other. They've just kind of got some details that, that they're, they're different on. They're both concluding that this is from God, directly. And, and they don't understand the source. In fact, uh, look at verse 24. He says, if it's not him, who could it be? He's <laughs> like... What an ironic statement. You know, we know the story. I know the story because because it's it's written out for us in the beginning. We know it's from Satan. And he's like, listen, if this isn't from God, it couldn't be from anybody else. And he's made the one statement that's absolutely incorrect. Uh, and that's one of the things that, that Job is going to be criticized by Elihu later. This is, I, I think, if, if, if Elihu had a notebook, he's writing this down and saving this for later. This is going to be one of the points that I come back to that you multiply words without knowledge. I find that also interesting that he talks about you multiply words. If you'll notice, Job's answers are almost always twice as long as the accusations presented against him. Right? They all talk for one chapter, and then Job talks for two chapters. You multiply words without knowledge. You make all these assumptions as well. Job is making wrong assumptions. Um, he says, and there are different thoughts on this, so I'm just going to present it. He says, um, uh, or where do we go here? In verse uh, verse 27, he says, If I say I will forget my complaint and I will put off my sad face and wear a smile, I'm afraid of my sufferings. I know you will not hold me innocent. And And... and there are different thoughts about who he's talking about when he says you. Is he talking about Bildad and these men, or is he talking to God? Is he kind of slipping into this conversation where he's giving a hypothetical conversation with God? I don't think so, because in verse 32, he, he references God in the third, third person. He says, 
he talks about he's not a man like I am, that I can answer him. So, so he seems to be talking about God, him. And so when he says you, it would seem that he's talking about these people that he's arguing with. You're not going to hold me innocent. I think it's funny. He says, if I wash myself with you know, snowy water, like distilled pure water, uh, if I cleanse my hands with soap, you're still going to hold me guilty. Basically, I can follow all the CDC guidelines. I can do everything right. And you guys have already made up your mind that I'm guilty. And there's nothing I can say. There's nothing I can do that's going to turn you off of this course. I, I, I'm, I'm giving you the best argumentation I can. Now, sometimes it's wrong, but I, you're already decided against me. God's not a man that I can answer him. I wish I could get that answer. But this is what I want to conclude with, because I, I think this is such a, an awesome thought for us. There's no mediator between us. He's not a man like I am. Think of these ironic statements. Who is there that can put his hand on him and me? And, and I think we take those statements and we can be sad for Job, but understand the envious position that we have. That we have someone that, who is there that's a man that can understand God? Well, Christ is a man. Who is there that can put a hand on God to understand God and put a hand on man to understand man? That's Christ. Who is there that's a mediator? Christ is called a mediator. And and I wonder if this is a prophetic statement and Job doesn't understand what he's saying. You know, there are a lot of thoughts like that in the Bible where God gives a thought and it's this is an amazing, profound thought. But thank goodness that there is someone who can present our cases before God and our, our feelings of injustice and uh, even when, when we, we end up wrong and, and all these things, there, there's someone that understands what that's like. So we're going to conclude with that.